Okay, landing. I have many positive traits. Like, I am handsome. I am compassionate. I am intelligent. But most of all, I love talking about relevant stuff only. Right? Only current events. Same. Only the, yes, only the crispest of cultural commentaries. And that's why I want to use the intro today to talk about Game of Thrones. Wow, I've heard um, of that new uh, that new show based on uh, new novels. Yes, the novels are new. It's it's really a, a miracle they could make the show so fast after the novels were released, right? Like a week after the novels released, they already had the show. Yeah, and um, they already had so much of the show too. Uh, all of it new. I was gonna say, I was gonna say it's like you know, like Athena springing from Zeus's forehead, fully clad in armaments. You wouldn't, so to, you wouldn't think they'd be able to put out multiple seasons of a show all at once. You'd think that, like, even yeah, like epistemologically, like they would be different. Mm. They would be one season, but no, no, they broke the mold. No, no, no. They released they released eight seasons all at once. Again, like mighty white armed Athena springing, fully armored. Um, yeah, Game of Thrones. So I've been watching it. Um, I'm only like what seven, eight years late. Um, I more wait. It's more right if we count from the first season. It's like way more than that. Yeah, I, I uh, think it's been like a decade. I have no idea. Yeah, whatever. Uh, I, I, to be clear, I wasn't like one of those haters or like, oh, you should read the books, blah blah. No, I, I wasn't like an insufferable idiot about it. But I watched the first season and I was like, this is good. But I remember <laughs> everything that's going to happen. So I I don't know. I'm kind of bored. And then I ha- I have this thing where if things are way, 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 way hyped, then it kind of like detracts a bit. Yeah, I have Not because too. I don't like... It's, it's weird because yeah. I'll, not... I'll try to tell people like it's not so much necessarily like just a hipstery urge to avoid the hype thing. I mean, obviously that's part of yeah. it. As embarrassing as that mm. is, it's just... But... Um, it's also like, I feel like the psychic noise level of a thing starts raising when I'm hearing about it fucking everywhere. And I'm like, I don't want to go for me. For me, it puts like a lot of pressure on it. Like when you're participating in this super hyped cultural thing, you're also, while you're watching it, you're like, what am I going to post about this? What am I going to say about this? And people are actually going to read what you post because everybody's caught up in this storm um, of interest right so it's like well i be called to, um, stupid because i have the wrong opinion about the new thing which is like i don't know man i'm yeah. just trying to watch a tv show like i don't need this exactly so then i won't i don't watch it and then i watch it later which is what i'm doing now and it's really nice because now i can watch it like free of that like you said very well like noise and there's no pressure and so on and also it's interesting to see how things age um I know everything that's going to happen, not just because I read the books, but also the last seasons, which diverge from the books, have already been, quote-unquote, spoiled. I mean, I sought out what happened uh, when things were running because I did want to participate somewhat in the discourse. I have a really have, good story have... about that. Um, when the ending had dropped and everyone was still fresh in their feelings about how pissed off it made them, I, uh, mm-hmm. I went to a party, um, and I have not 
I've seen about classic mistake. I've seen about half of an episode, I think. Uh, my feeling yeah. on it, it's mostly like like anyone who was reading a lot of fantasy at the time. I had read the books um, or I read about half of the first one. And I just was like, OK, I, I get what this is going for. It's, you know, wanting to look at um, what if these fantasy tropes that we all sort of take for granted were, in fact, you know, actually established into like what a historical European world would be like. How fucked up and terrible would this be? Like, how good actually are yeah. structures of monarchy? And I'm like, okay, I get it. I'm not sure I really need, at that point, there are only three books. Um, and he was saying at the time that the fourth one was going to be the last one. And I was like, I'm not sure I really need more of that. Pretty good, though. Um, put it down. Watch about half an episode. And the fact that they kind of stunt-casted Sean Bean for uh, Ned Stark. I, I know why they did it. They were like trying to tie a little bit into the positive feelings that everyone has for the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings. But I looked at it. And yeah. Was like, you know, I would rather watch Lord of the Rings though. You know how I feel about <laughs> things, you know how yeah. I feel about them. <clears throat> so, so that, that's like an actually, actually really good segue into what uh, I wanted to discuss, the, which is the, 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 the short version of the story that, that I was going to tell is I go to the party having not seen yeah. the ending at all and i tell someone who's like i'm so fucking pissed off about the ending i'm like i can't believe they did that yada yada and i uh i say verbatim you know i haven't seen the ending and i also haven't watched the show but everyone who doesn't like the ending is a crybaby because it's the best ending of all time and I thought he would sense that I'm fucking with him and that I'm like, but yeah. he got screaming no. mad at me. Like, like this is the first time I'd seen him. Um, and he's like, he's like fucking heated. He is screaming at me. And I'm just sitting there kind of like half shouting back at this point, just like uh, more in character than anything else. I just find the entire uh, fact that this is happening funny as hell. Um he storms off and doesn't talk to me for the remainder of the night. Like he's, he's actually, he calls me a, <laughs> a, a reactionary boomer uh, for mm. uh, getting, for raising my voice at him about a TV show when he was the one who raised his voice at me. Um, even better. I find out from a friend of his at that party that we are going to be going to the same show of uh, uh, Emma Ruth Rundle opening for Mono literally in like a week. So like, <laughs> I and Good. it's like a small venue, obviously, because it's not you know those aren't huge yeah. names. They're big for people like us, but they aren't like huge overall. So I'm just staring at this guy who I made screaming mad via Game of Thrones like maybe four days prior for the entire show. Made that show so good. Yeah, so enjoyable and relaxing. <laughs> so I think that's a great story. And I have my own of like people getting <laughs> inordinately pissed about this, but I think it actually speaks to the common ties between the show and the books, which I think is really interesting, right? Because people who read the books, you know, when we were teenagers, um, that kind of sentiment was already there about Game of Thrones and a, so a Song of Ice and Fire, or however you want to call it. And not just about the Song of Ice and Fire, right? Like, if you recall when Lord of the Rings, the movies came out, there were also people who, completely wrongly, by the way, were very upset about some stuff in 
in the movies and the changes that Peter Jackson made. And like, is there any other fandom or just readers that are so fanatic about the accuracy of the vision when translating a work like this? Like, I don't think there are, I'm sure there are, but a lot less of them, like Jane Austen fans who, you know, scream at people at parties because of a detail in Pride and Prejudice, right? Or it, like, if, if there are big Darcy heads out there who are getting mad steamed about like, he isn't dark and brooding enough, like they're harder to come by. <laughs> like, Yeah, exactly. There's less of them. <laughs> There's less of them. And like, also the rage is far less socially acceptable. But like being actively mad about Game of Thrones was a mode right? It was a social and mode in, in the sense that it ties to fashion. It was like a social moment where it was completely acceptable to get extremely mad at Game of Thrones. And what's interesting, by the way, is that it, it's still going like House of the Dragon. This is a completely standalone work that has no correlation to anything George R. R. Martin ever wrote. I mean, it's in the setting, right? But it's not adapting any of his works. And yet people are getting pissed about how the Targaryens are being depicted and so on. And, and don't get me wrong, this is not like a screed of mine against fandom. You don't need me to do that. Like there's been enough shit out there against and for fandom or whatever. I just find it extremely fascinating that fantasy, a genre that is inherently, I mean, all fiction is made up, right? But this genre is inherently contra reality like like the, right? the definition of the mode is its divergence from from realism in some way like that's exactly that's, that's what and defines then, the fantastic via Balzac. exactly thank you greatest literary name of all time balzac love it <laughs> yeah is that like <laughs> i agree 100 it's like it's defined by the fact that it's not real and not just because it's not referent to the real right it's not just that like the connection between the ideas and actual objects is lacking. That's not the only thing. The other thing is like, it's not, it doesn't have to be internally cohesive, right? Like fantasy, I, I, I want to say up until like the 90s almost, was good fantasy was intentionally non-cohesive. Like think about, again, we got to mention him and in the same breath say that he was a terrible asshole like Jack Vance. The reason his fantasy or his science fantasy, whatever, is so powerful is because it is wild and random and divergent. And, and not just him, right? Like other bulwarks like Fritz Leiber and M. John Harrison, which we'll discuss later on the episode with his like Viriconium. And then also Tolkien. Like, and that, that's another thing that I wanted to bring up. Like, Lord of the Rings is not internally consistent. And Tolkien doesn't even try to make it internally consistent. Like there are tales, foundational tales, that have multiple versions that exist in the Tolkien legendarium. And Tolkien never made an effort to have like an authoritative version of them. Especially Hell, the Lord of the Rings. He go on. He he wraps this into the meta text of Lord of the Rings by specifically saying, um, in pretty much mm -hmm. anything that relates to Arda, that these are recordings of events, but they are then beholden to all the same distortions and strange permutations. Exactly. I think that like, I mean, think about Lord, 
Yeah, exactly. Because it is a history, right? Like Lord of the Rings is written by Bilbo. What's called the Red Book, right? The Red Book, which Bilbo and Frodo finishes it, right? They're writing a history of the events of the Third Age, the end of the Third Age. And Tolkien alludes several times to the fact that it's from a Hobbit's perspective. Therefore, things might have been exaggerated or left out of the narrative. But then somehow, the Lord of the Rings... I mean, I guess because the movies were so popular, but it's it's in the middle of this nerd war, right? Like who knows the most quotes and who knows the most obscure facts? Who 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 cares? Like that was never Tolkien's um, reason for doing what he did. It's, but then, like also, Martin, it's it, it, it's especially strange that kind of mode that we wind up seeing, especially when it comes to like Lord of the Rings fans, because I don't think anyone who has that like deep foundational love of Lord of the Rings sits and goes you know what i really love i loved memorizing all those facts I, <laughs> I nothing delighted me more than uh sitting down and learning a fucking spreadsheet about this but no it's always like you know i would go into the woods afterwards and i'd pick up a stick and i'd pretend it was on and you know that i'm you know like yeah the the imagination feast component um, yeah and so but here's the thing, like Martin as well, if you read A Song of Ice and Fire, yeah, there's like these political machinations and lots of names and events and people doing this or that. But that was never the point of the books. Interestingly, like what Martin doesn't have, to his credit, by the way, is like blow by blow combat. He doesn't really do that a lot. He uses it as a tool to highlight specific instances of combat like the famous duel between Oberyn Martell and the mountain or uh, uh, Eddard's capture by Jamie. Those are like the battles that get, you know, focused. But then others, for example, the famous battle where Tyrion gets injured, he doesn't, he doesn't describe the battle blow by blow, which some other fantasy authors do. It's never about like accuracy, right? It's more about theme and mood. And of course, Martin's own, again, slightly, criticism confused version of politics and his desire to like i don't know resurrect like the good nobility or whatever but it's never about these details and yet again this is not just about the shows even when the books were being released there were endless forum threads about like nitpicking and arguments and genealogies and who's like, who's John's mother? Like, this was a very common topic. I think I mentioned this on the cast before. And people would get mad. Like, if you said something like, maybe it was ridiculous, right? You said something like, oh, John's mom is, fuck it, I don't know, child of the forest from the north or what is some nonsense. People would, like, explode on you claiming that it's not consistent. Yeah, they, they treat I'll, you like you were a scholar and that they were a scholar. And this was like the same level of like publishing a paper that had like a fundamental flaw and getting that in Nature magazine or something like that. Yeah. And even more than that, like you will like a scholar that gets something wrong, you were doing injustice to actual people who existed, right? Like a lot of the angle towards like a hack historian for example, is that you're telling the stories of people who actually lived and you're telling it wrong, right? And you're yeah. like besmirching their memory. And this is the crux of what I want to say. This is made up. You, you get that, right? Like you understand that these people don't actually exist. And Martin like 
invented them and therefore he can do whatever the fuck he wants with them. And more than that, I don't want to leave it like at a liberal place of like, he has a right to do what he wants. Of course he does. But more interestingly, if he were to write the most like batshit answer to who John's mom is, because he is a good author, he will convince you that it makes sense. Not all of you, hypothetical people to whom I'm speaking, but most of you. Like that's what being a good author, part of being a good author means that your craft allows you to convince people that the vision that you had for the story is how the story goes. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to do things like show you the folly of Cersei, like recruiting the sparrows to her cause. That doesn't make a lot of sense either. That is kind of like a 180 that Cersei does, and then she does another 180 after it. But he's a good author, so he explains to you her psychological state of mind and why she does the, makes the mistake and how it affects her. And you are convinced. Or you're not, and you put down the book and you never think about it again because it's such a big rift, you can't like look past it. But 99% of people who read the books are convinced. That's what writing a good story means, right? It's and And that's what's interesting to me, like, People don't, when they translate this into the movies, into movies or into a show, they don't try to be convinced. They have much less patience with showrunners. So take D&D, right? The people, not the game, the people who ran Game of Thrones. Those guys are like detested, right? Like people have sworn vendettas against them for what they've quote unquote done. Like all they did was tell you a story you were unconvinced by. There's nothing inherently worse about what they decided the story should look like at the end than whatever Martin will maybe eventually write. They're just, they didn't convince you. That's it. What I find especially fascinating about a lot of the response here is we wind up seeing, and, you know, leave it to me to see this in fucking everything, but we wind up seeing what feels a lot like a rewarmed version of like a death anxiety in people that it's it's as though they look at this and feel oh you have wasted my time by giving me a story that didn't x y or z and they map onto you their anxieties about the finitude of their own lives um which it has a you know a fairly rich psychoanalytical bed if someone wanted to dive into that it's all pretty obvious stuff i think but like no one who does it seems to be aware of that. Like, it, it would be one thing to me if it was voiced as like, well, I'm bothered because like the ending wasn't really satisfying in a certain way and I don't have infinite time to listen to infinite stories. So like I get pissed off if I feel like I've wasted my time with something or like if it didn't deliver. Because that would at least open up the question of like, well, what, what to your mind would be what is convincing about a tale? What makes a tale convincing or worthwhile? You know, it's at least some marginally interesting questions. The thing that I that drove me up the wall with the whole, like, Game of Thrones, like, anger thing is none of, even responding to the anger felt, like, pathologically uninteresting to me in a lot of ways. Like, yeah. it just, it was so bewildering to me. Yeah, a hundred percent. And like now, watching it back, maybe this is the last thing I'll say, and then we can move to the book. Like, 
it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> the show is fine. Like I'm watching the sixth season now, and this is supposed to be where everything goes bad. But like the the other seasons are. Don't get me wrong. The show is good. Like I'm enjoying myself. I wouldn't be watching like eight seasons of something if I didn't like it. Um, I really enjoyed some of the seasons. Like I think the fourth one is fucking brilliant. It has like really good moments. By the way, all of the moments have nothing to do with any of the set pieces or the design or the writing. They just have to do with, you know, the fact that Peter Dinklage is a phenomenal fucking actor or um, any of the other, like, um, actors, are, they just do a phenomenal work, especially the young ones, right? Like Kit Harrington and Sophie Turner and... Um, Natalie Dormer is really good, who plays Marjorie. Um, like, really phenomenal talent doing some phenomenal acting work, right? Doesn't have anything to do with the showrunners or whatever, right? It's just good actors acting well. But, like, none of it is very good. None of it is excellent. People, you know, mention Game of Thrones in the same breath as, like, The Wire or Sopranos. I mean, they also say Breaking Bad, but Breaking Bad is shit. And if you like Breaking Bad, then you're bad. Um, oh. I hated Breaking Bad. Oh my god, I fucking hate Breaking Bad. Sorry, I, I don't want to rant about this. I hate that show so much. I did it's Breaking so... Bad, but it took me about three or four seasons to actually have it click that I liked it because it is a comic book oh, I... TV show not based on a comic <laughs> that it existed. And whenever I would say this to people, they'd get mad because they'd go, why don't you respect no, the it's... big real yeah. drama? And i go, well, no, it's goofy melodrama. And once I embraced like, oh, this is like absurdist comic book okay, level pitch to these kinds of that's like the only events. good that's the only take i will i will accept right like breaking bad is a soap opera basically that's yeah. what you're saying and it's like yeah one, okay. once i accepted that i was like you know what i can actually fuck with this but um yeah that when yeah. i was trying to approach it as like serious drama because to to give everyone a little bit of perspective it was coming out at the same time that mad men was mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. Mad Men is like far superior as a show. I think I think it's just foolish to pretend otherwise. Like, what a fucking brilliant show! And credit to the to 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 Vince, whatever the the showrunner for Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul is also a much better show. That yes, crosses, Better Call Saul was phenomenal. Crosses the divide of like when is it so proper and when is it drama a lot better? But yeah. yeah, I agree with you that like people wind up ramping up this pitch about Game of Thrones in its overall placement in a way that feels befuddling to me. It, fe it feels like this is the first it's time not a lot even... of people have watched anything. Yeah, yeah. It's not even like on the same level. It's not even close, uh, especially to something like The Wire or Sopranos, some of the best shows ever made. Like, no, it's not that good. And by the way, I'm going to say something even more aggravating potentially. A lot of the limitations of Game of Thrones are the limitations of fantasy, right? Like fantasy as Martin writes it. And I, I like the books. I've read all five of them. I like them. I think they're good. I think some of it is genius. Like some parts of um, A Song of Ice and Fire is genius. But overall, I think it's a very good candidate for mainstream down the middle fantasy, like after Tolkien, because it suffers from all of its flaws, right? Like the way that any emotional impact is undercut by the penchant for like characters return and reversals as a, as a plot device. And like the world feels so flimsy, the more you learn about it, like the more world building 
that is done, the more like the world is uninteresting and, and vapid. Um, and, and, and that's what happens to the show. Like, I'm sorry, but watching Arya losing her sight because she's training to be an assassin, I don't give a shit. I don't care. Like, it gets lost so quickly in the weight of its ensemble cast. And again, this is not a dig at Martin or at Game of Thrones. This is a problem of fantasy at large. Hell, this is something that Lord of the Rings suffers from. Right? Like, yeah. Uh, like, I fucking, love Lord of the Rings, but they're yeah, in a perfect, a perfect world. Book. I think it probably would have either gotten cut down in size or split in split into different books in a way that wouldn't just be like the trilogy format but yeah it winds up um so yeah this is a really good segue into i want i want to read a quote by m john harrison who we're going to um talk about a book that he wrote for the second time by the way illustrious club right uh, authors which we've spoken about twice but m john harrison is probably the best living science fiction author period maybe i would say um, I don't know, Mike, Michael Moorcock is still alive, so maybe he gives him a run for his money, and I can think of like a few other names, but he's definitely one of the best um, genre authors um, alive. And he has something, he has a very good quote um, about world building, right? And which really kind of drives the point home of my whole spiel about Game of Thrones and why it's limited and Lord of the Rings as well and so on. Here, here it goes. It's about science fiction, but it applies to fantasy just as well. Every moment of a science fiction story must represent the triumph of writing over world building. World building is dull. World building literalizes the urge to invent. World building gives an unnecessary permission for acts of writing, indeed for acts of reading. World building numbs the reader's ability to fulfill their part of the bargain because it believes that it has to do everything around here if anything is going to get done. Above all, world building is not technically necessary. It is the great clomping foot of nerdism. It is the attempt to exhaustively survey a place that isn't there. A good writer would never try to do that, even with a place that is there. It isn't possible, and if it was, the results wouldn't be readable. They would constitute not a book, but the biggest library ever built, a hallowed place of dedication and lifelong study. This gives us a clue to the psychological type of the world builder and the world builder's victim and makes us very afraid. So it's so good because the part that I love the most about it is world building numbs the reader's ability to fulfill their part of the bargain. What color the eyes are of this random elf is your job, right? It's like the voice inside you, your imagination, which fills in the blanks about why this trader is here or why this city is the way that it is or why this spell works the way that it does. Like Jack Vance, again, asshole, but sadly one of the best titles this genre has ever had, like tells you fucking nothing. And then your brain kicks in and fills in the blanks. That's exactly what Langdon was referring to about going to the woods with a wooden stick and pretending you're Aragorn. The reason that works is because Aragorn's entire life is shrouded in mystery. Like, you know nothing about him growing up, where he learned how to wield a sword. But then Game of Thrones, every single fucking thing is explained. I don't want to know. I don't. It's not that it's just not interesting. It 
actively detracts from the appeal of the setting, which is supposed to be a place for me to flesh out so that I am invested, so that I have a part in the bargain, as M. John Harrison puts it, right? It, it's, it's especially funny because as someone who's done like a bit more like proper literary study, um, like I went in to like the collegiate and academic environment as a big lover of fantasy and lover of science fiction. And while I still like the stuff quite a bit, I, like a lot of people who went in, found that love kind of slowly diminish, and at least in a certain way, the more that I studied literature. And it's basically because you start running into exactly the same problems that you're talking about here. Like there is, there's elements of studying, say, the formalist components of um, biographies, especially like political biographies. Why do they go into not only so much detail, but the specific types of details that they go into. And it's because they're trying to tell, there's actually a word for it. And I forget what it is. Cause I'm, uh, cause all this shit's off the cuff, but, um, there's a, there's a term for the kind of, uh, biography that is specifically like a materialist biography that it's like i want to examine what relations between objects and experiences generated the personhood that i'm talking about um and so that form requires a certain amount of detail because you're trying to do a specific thing with that information likewise um certain modes of magical realism or social realism or like a bildungsroman or like the modernist projects of like, uh, like Musil's The Man Without Qualities or um, like uh, James Joyce, all these things, um, the stream of consciousness of Virginia Woolf, all of them use the types of details that they use and the amount of details that they use to do a certain thing. Like the fundamental thought at a certain point is always around, um, thought and its inverse so one is like economy of motion that like you don't put something into a book that is not needed for that book and then the second thing being if it's in the book therefore it is needed what is it needed for what is this doing now that it's present and the thing that becomes so infuriating about so much bad science fiction and bad fantasy and kind of widens your eye to how much of it is bad obviously not all of it we've raved we and myself specifically have raved too much about too many kinds of science fiction and fantasy to act as though like it's a bad genre that's that's stupid um so much of it you look at the details and the way that they use them and it is somewhere between wasteful and meaningless And that's the thing that starts driving you up the wall as a reader is that like one hopes that with certain works like, say, you know, Ursula K. Le Guin or Philip K. Dick, the more you read, the more you can go back to them and go, holy fuck, not a single goddamn word is wasted. Like things that I thought were meaningless the first time around, I come back and I go, oh, you added a nice little ironic veneer here or you added like this strange like one of the elements that these more materialistically grounded biopics or biographies tend to do 
is try to map out, you know, what are the weird complications and contradictions of a psyche? Where does someone say or grow up believing that they are X only to learn via action that they are in fact Y and may never have known that if not for this chance encounter? And so it's like, it's clear that a lot of fantasy writers are trying to do that kind of thing, but it's done so haphazardly and clouded with so much additional meaningless detail that it feels like theme kind of falls apart. Like you're watching a house that's being built out of rotting wood, and so it's falling apart as it's being built. It's infuriating. Yeah, and today we're going to talk about a perfect counterexample, oh, right? Yeah, a book that, a book that explains so little, but delivers so much. But before that, we will do music. So for me, there's only one choice of an album to play a track from, and that is Soft's Exogalactic. So imagine if you, for some reason, you lived in a horrible reality where a law was passed that forbids writing power metal, specifically power metal. Um, so you had to disguise power metal as a death metal album. This is what this album would sound like. Sothor, a pretty young band, I think. Um, I mean, this is their second release. Um, yeah, I think from... the oldest one's in his like early thirties, if I remember correctly. Oh no, I, no, I'm I'm wrong. There were releases before that. It's not the second release. The second release that got the attention of like online uh, metal circles. The first one was Interdimensional Invocations. In 2019, which was fucking phenomenal. We waited long enough for Exogalactic. That's why I forgot about the other ones because we've been waiting for so long for a follow up. Um, these guys are from Seattle. Um, it's really fucking good. It's really like energetic, bright, progressive, well made death metal. It's like if Death, the band Death, and Angra, you know, got into like this horrible car crash and uh, melded um, into one band. It's fucking good. Yo, on like, that note, it's even better than the previous that one. That new Angra record, Heat. No, don't say it. Look, no. Look, we'll talk about this later. <laughs> no, no, we won't. I refuse to acknowledge that that album exists. Um, so I want to play the most power metal track from Exogalactic, which is the closing track. It's called "Map to the Stars, Monument to the Agents." Hell yeah, brother. Um, and it's so fucking good. Like, as you're listening to it, just think about like what I said and the power metal comparison, and it will just jump out at you and just have fun. It's a really fun track and a really fun album. So if you haven't listened to it yet, there's still time. It's only here for until the internet collapses or Bandcamp is killed by Song Trader, those bastards. Um, so please enjoy Soft's Map to the Stars, Monument to the Agents. <laughs>
Okay, now for some real fucking good food. This is one of the best novels I've read in the last three decades. I, I am not exaggerating. This is one of the best books I have ever read. And of course, it is by M. John Harrison, the author we have already quoted on this episode. You might recall him from our episode on Light, which was released in 2022, a.k.a. one of the best science fiction books ever written. Phenomenal genre chameleon postmodern sci-fi novelist. He also wrote very famously, wrote Vericonium, uh, which is a sequence of novels and short stories that he wrote from the beginning of the 70s and into the middle of the 80s. If you haven't read Vericonium, what are you doing? Stop listening. Close the tab. Go buy Vericonium. It's collected into one collection by Golance, and it is it will fucking blow you away. Think like science fantasy, but corrosive, dark, imaginative, fucked up, psychedelic. Incredible. Um, by the way, I mentioned Michael Moorcock in the same breath as Harrison. They're friends. They work together. <laughs> <clears throat> Moorcock was editing they New Worlds. They each other's work a lot. Yeah, yeah. Moorcock edited New Worlds magazine in the 60s. Um, Harrison was their books editor and he wrote reviews as well. Um, and, and they were both like very integral in the 70s movement against what they saw as the um, stagnation of science fiction. What's wrong with my voice? <clears throat> Sorry about that. I'm getting Welcome old. to America, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the older pollution. Um, M. John Harrison has won everything except for the big ones, and they don't. We don't care about those, right? He won the Tiptree Award, the Arthur C. Clarke Award, the Philip K. Dick Award, and he won the Goldsmiths Prize, which is very interesting because that is like a quote-unquote proper um, literary award, right? Uh, found yeah, I was say like. You know this guy's the real shit when he can't win a Hugo, but he's out here winning like regular <laughs> fucking literary awards yeah. from like literary magazines. Yeah. So this is like a grown up a grown up award for grown up literature, um, which uh, Harrison won in 2020 for the book we are uh, going to cover: "The Sunken Land Begins to Rise Again." Um, I want to show fun short story about this book. So funnily enough, I I'd heard of M. John Harrison before, because like if I read a lot of uh, new wave science fiction, if you like science fiction and you were born after new wave science fiction uh, started to be a thing, you have read it. It just will naturally come up. Like, you know, I read my Kobo Abe, you know, my obviously Ursula K. Le Guin is, is a really big one there. Um, <clears throat> But similar to Michael Moorcock, I had just sort of never gotten around to him. Like, I'd, I'd always sort of put him off, and it was just sort of like, it, always something else was coming up. Um, it was specifically this book that finally made me go, I need to make time for this guy. Like, I was reading some of the excerpts from it as part of the pre-release for it, Um uh, Gareth and I were talking about maybe covering it for death sentence. Um, and it, that also didn't pan out, but I was like, this seems too like perfectly my kind of fucking book. Um, yeah. and funnily enough, I was convinced literally until just before we recorded our episode on light that the dude was an American because <laughs> of 
certain elements of this book that we'll talk about. Not that, um, less something like that he, he writes about, like, I, I was driving on the right side of the road. Like, n- nothing, nothing like that. It's just, like, certain ways of writing that I associate far more with, like, a Walt Whitman or, like, a Faulkner yeah. than with, like, a British writer. Um, and yeah, I told, I told Eden about this as we were getting ready to read, uh, uh, light and it was sort of like a half pact that we made with each other. It was like, okay. And Eden was like, okay, we're doing light. Cause I have a lot to say about light and you're going to fucking love it. I did in case you have not <laughs> listened yeah. to that episode. I loved it. Um, but then it was like, okay, then we're going to do this because like this needs to, um, I, if I remember correctly, I think at the time you hadn't read this one either, Correct. and so it was like just so here's, too perfect of a. Here's my journey with them, John Harrison. I picked up the Centauri device back when I was reading like the SF Masterworks series by Golans, which I've mentioned many times on on this cast. It has its limitations, but also has some really phenomenal books in it. And I was way too young to read it. Like, think about the Stars My Destination by Alfred Bestel, but it's weirder than that. Like, it has space anarchists it has an israeli world government um and by the way an arab world government which resists it it has priests that open up uh windows into the inner bodies because they believe that like bodily processes are holy it is fucked up beyond the condition but the verse the literature captured me so fucking hard that then i just started gobbling up um, Harrison's work. I moved on to Light, and then the the three novels in that trilogy, um, and then went back to Viriconium, and I was hooked ever since. However, Harrison also has um, non-genre works like Climbers, The Course of the Heart, uh, Signs of Life, and so on. And, and I'm still gonna read them, um, but you know, I kind of shelved them because I was in this, you know, really um, big kind of like science fiction drive. And I kind of, you know, went on to other pastures. And then The Sunken Land Begins to Rise Again was released. And for me, it was very exciting because it was the first time that Harrison had released a book when I was aware of him, right? Like I was aware of who he was and he released a new novel. So it was very exciting to me. Um, And it was on my list for a long time because it's not a short book. And famously... Harrison is not easy to read, and I mean that as like a massive compliment, right? Um, he's not a comfortable author. So I, I put it off, I put it off, and then at some point we did light, and I was like, okay, enough. Like, it's time for me to actually sit down and read this book. And boy, am I fucking happy I did so, because it is phenomenal. Let, let me let just like sketch the preliminaries of, of the book, and then we can dive into what the fuck is it about. So... <laughs> Um, The book has two main characters. Um, It has Shaw, who is a fucking loser, right? Um, He had, and I love this, he hasn't always been a loser. He was um, a middling bourgeois dream, right? He had like a a mid-level position at some firm. He was living in London. He was on, quote-unquote, the right track. But then he had a breakdown, and he kind of threw away his entire life not into the toilet but into the toilet that is the the Thames River right he now lives like like a shitty apartment complex on the river where all the dampness and the fog and 
the pollution and the waste and everything from the river kind of like taints every single um, piece. And on the other hand, we have Victoria, who um, they have like a fling, but they're so fucking awkward. Victoria is this like classic British person who is like so unaware of her own internal landscape that she can't read anyone else. Right? She's so lacking in emotional language that she can't face the emotions of anybody around her. She can't face Shaw. She can't face herself. She can't face anyone else. So what she does is she goes back to the country. Right? She moves back to her mother's house, who is deceased, um, in Shropshire. Like, this is the most um, midland of the midland place you can imagine. Right? smack in the middle of the UK, outside of Birmingham, like the most cut-off country, isolated and, and conservative and good old country English place you can imagine. Um, and it's, if, like, it's like Britain's Kansas. Exactly. 100%. Um, and it's, of course, on the Severn River, which is the quintessential British river that, that runs through um, the UK and has defined so much of its... Uh, you know, uh, politics and economics and so on. So it's like the most English place you can imagine and London, right? Which is the most like empire place you, you can imagine. Now, what happens to those people? Many things. Um, <laughs> in the background... That's, like, that's a great question. Yeah, that's a, Having just finished the book, I would also like to know what happens. So in the background, and when I say the background, like... The very far background. Like imagine you've just left the supermarket and you see someone you kind of maybe knew in high school, but they're like on the other side of the parking lot and there's light behind them. So you can't really make out their, their characteristics, but you kind of think it's them by their posture. That kind of distant, okay? Fish people are rising up from the ocean, right? There's some sort of like missing link in human evolution that are fish people and they're kind of emerging um, embryonic half formed into our society and it's doing like a lot of things to human society some people are they believe in it they want them to come they see it as justification for like conspiracy theories and stuff like that and then some are trying to repress it but this is all like faintly faintly in the background of Shaw's story Victoria on the other hand begins to glimpse this nightly other world which lives in parallel to the um, sleepy town that she has moved to, right? Like, so, I, okay, personal note, one of the reasons that I really love this book is because I lived in the UK for two years. Admittedly, in Chester, which is not in the Midlands, but it's still like a sleepy um, town and a very conservative and bourgeois place. And what I love about it is like the inherent weirdness and violence of the sleepy country routine. So the trades, right? Your plumbers and tanners and construction workers meet to do some bizarre dancing rituals in the abandoned house, semi-abandoned house that Victoria lives in. The local like businesses come and go in strange ways and catering to strange people people disappear into the river someone is calling the 
dog maybe or is it victoria out in the moors the fens above the the settlement anybody who's been to england in these places can really relate to these kind of scenes but it's all with harrison's like expert weirdness right like think vandermeer's weirdness but even more faint and in the background like it, it's so it hard it comes boldly apparent that anything that i have and this is not a knock to alan moore who i adore i adore his fiction like a huge amount um i found more gratifac gratis gratification is that not i'm not gratification there we go i'm like <laughs> come on man yeah. like i went into so much debt to learn words um i get substantially more gratif- uh, gratification from his from his prose fiction these days than from his comic stuff not as a knock to the comic stuff but just like oh he's clearly maturing it is oppressively apparent how much he cribbed notes from m john harrison which i look up later and of course he's spoken rhapsodically about him like isn't hiding it yeah um it's it's that same kind of like you get a very clear awareness that m john harrison the man is extremely erudite has read a tremendous amount of different works has internalized and broken down a lot of different kinds of writers literary writers um genre writers all kinds of like eras like you get as much of the elements of weird fiction from like touches of lovecraft with you know with the fish people he he isn't exactly he doesn't shy away from the fact that that's clearly a little bit of it but he does all the same postmodern touches that you'd expect with that of like treating them like any kind of migrant community and you know with all the kinds of social questions there but then also elements of like 19th century like uh fantastical and weird fiction but then also like contemporary literary fiction it's just like all of this like beautifully very incredibly well studied and deeply erudite writing like at any given turn that i felt that i had really cornered okay here's the voice of this book i know where he's coming from now he'd make another little pivot of just like it's like watching a virtuoso play an instrument that you know incredibly well yeah and like every little turn you can tell that he really wants you as a reader to hopefully get like what kind of writer he's pulling from a little bit or who he's hybridizing together in like combinations you never would have expected and like then applied to a scenario that you're like, I never would have expected hearing so, their literary voice applied here. Like, oh my God, it's such a fucking feast. So from what Langdon just said and, and the things that I said, you know who is the last name that we need to conjure here and is Brian Catling, of course. Like oh, there's yeah. so much in common between, they're very distinct writers, right? They're very different from each other, but they operate in that same space, first of like weirding Britain, right? And weirding specifically England. And it's like ponderous, just across from the pub, sort of post-colonial boring violence, right? They both do that. But more than that, they both paint with light. And if you go back to our episode about Catling's earwig, Earwig is the book that really resonated for me as I was reading Sunken Land, which is exactly what Langdon is referring to, like this eruditeness and his literary 
influences. I, I want to read you a paragraph from Sunken Land. And if you've read Irwig or listened to our episode on it, remember what I said there about like bright light whiteness and the shock of it, the sterility of it um, that Catling uses. And uh, look for its notes in, in this paragraph that, that I'm going to um, read to you. It was quiet down there, cool and damp between tall brick walls and layers of eroded sandstone. With each turn of the stair, you lost sight of what had gone before. There was only the next ten yards, a fern going out of the wall, deepening silence as you left the traffic behind. Halfway down, the slot turned sharply left, at the same time widening to become a kind of shallow, steep ramp. Here, the rock was poisoned with oxides, thick with cobwebs. When she looked up, Victoria could see the back of the houses and shops on the high street. Old, disused doors opening onto air, windows dusty and broken, then the sky, a rinsed, shocking blue. It's so good. It's so evocative. But, and it does go into details, right? It is leading you through this path, but it doesn't like tell you why the wall is there. It doesn't tell you who lives in, in the houses. It doesn't tell you everything that Victoria is feeling every step of the way. It leaves it, so much to your it, imagination, it, but it, it... It feels like what a masterful painter does. So exactly what like, I was going to say. It gives you a palette, right? Like, no, no brushstroke is here accidentally. Yeah. This is all very deliberately put down. He's thinking about how does it feel to have these details and only these details and no other details yeah exactly and that like, would it be if i remove one does it feel the same and does it feel right and if i add one am i am i adding to the feeling or am i taking away from the feeling if i add just this one little stroke because you can even hear in the way that eden was reading it like there is this natural sense of like poetic cadence to it again that's that's the kind of bit that like it felt very Whitman-esque or Faulkner-esque in terms of the way that his language has this beautiful clarion, like, uh, song-like quality to it. It's, it's so goddamn good. Yeah. So the flip side to this, so like Victoria's story, because you, you receive this palette, is like associated with cold and brightness, you know, those clear days where it's really cold, but the sun is shining and everything is this kind of like sharp... Um, has a sharp light to it and it, it keeps building as the more she travels the countryside and tries to like decipher this existence that she finds herself in the parallel to that is Shah's story which honestly is like it's hard to read like viscerally because he is drowning in detritus right he's drowning in mold and the falling apart of like modern day England and how caustic and and suffocating um, London is, even when he gets out of like quote unquote the bad areas, right? Even when he walks into pubs or um, into other like churches and other places that are supposed to be maybe a bit better, they're still. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like oppressive and very hard to navigate. And that that comes also with his ignorance, right? He works this 
weird. So one of the worst, I mean, best, but worst characters in the book is his roommate. What's his name? Tim, right? Tim. This weird character is like collecting grave water and has this like conspiracy blog that is unintelligible to anybody but him. He's like, he sneaks into the toilet in their shared like space and does weird shit in there and spies on Shaw. But then Shaw goes to work for him and like help him move these weird ass books about the coming fish people or whatever and gets completely lost in this weird ass conspiracy that also involves like a psychic and like a medium. So the confusion and the oppressiveness of London intermingles with like Shaw's like belligerent ignorance of his own life and where his life is going and what he wants to do with them, like how to live. This is what Shaw inherently has forgotten. Like how do you wake up every day and go to work and talk to people and make sense of your life and eat food? Like everything is so difficult for him and the writing changes along with it. So so let me read you another paragraph this time from Shaw's perspective and, and feel like how, you know, humid right? Mildewy, the writing is. Secure on the towpath, he looked back. Anything, he thought, could be living in all that warm, dense, airless, puzzling growth. But the surface of the river was compact and burnished all the, ways, all the way to Kew Bridge, where the piers split it into whirls and eddies which streamed off towards barns. It was one of those London mornings when the overcast distributes the light evenly across the sky. The sun never breaks through, but you feel it there all day, wrapped around you, until your eyes tire with it and you take refuge in some bar. The previous week's bad weather had folded itself away into heat and humidity, but remained imminent somehow in the dull, brassy glare that lay across the city. Everything was dusty again, but the sky could always open. So... Like now we have the two pictures of of the book. And the next point I want to make is not a critique, but it's like a warning to anybody who wants to read this book. This is all that you get, <laughs> right? Like these passages describing things, not, not all that you get, 98% of what you get, describing like things that are happening to Shah, things that are happening to Victoria, the places she finds in the villages, experience that, that she does, fixing the house, fixing the garden. Shah's like, continuing I don't know um, subservience to this quagmire of, of Tim's conspiracy this is all that you get Harrison does zero world building there's no explanation for like spoilers spoilers from like big spoilers now the Victoria story ends with her walking into a pond and disappearing just like her friend that she met in the village, who used maybe was her mom's lover, um, she encounters this like faint pagan cult worshiping like the river or water or something. Nothing is explained about this cult. Why are they there? What do they believe in? How does the magic work? What it does? Why is it do nothing? But it's the story of like Victoria losing herself moving away from London, away from Shaw, who used to be her lover, away from her life, and into the countryside. And Shaw, on the other hand, like descends deeper into the muck of whatever is returning, whatever these people want to do with those who are returning, and discovers 
nothing about why they're doing what they're doing, who these people are, why they're coming back, what is the significance of all of this. And that makes for some very frustrating reading, which is on purpose. That's why it's not a critique. I thoroughly enjoyed this book and I would, I'm probably going to read it again. But if you're expecting like an answer or a resolution or even for things to just like coalesce into a cohesive story, you're not going to get that here. And it's not like the other weird shit that we've covered where it's so, you know, like Troika, right? It's so fragmentary. It's so all over the place that it never, um, it never coalesces into anything. There's barely any story here to be weird, right? It's so faint. It's so glimpsed out of the corner of your eye and it never materializes. Like the guy, remember from high school that you kind of see in the background? He never walks towards you. His face never like, you know, crystallizes out of the light and suddenly you remember like the actual experiences. He all, the story, the guy from high school, which is this weird metaphor that I've chosen, he always stays distant, right? He always stays like clad in this obfuscating light. It's such a unique experience, right? I don't think I've ever read a novel that is so thin. So it, I had the unique pleasure of reading this at the same time that I was rereading To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. Oh, yeah. Considered by a lot of people to be maybe the best book, best English language novel ever written. If not, it's right up there with like Ulysses and Moby Dick of like, not saying ones that necessarily you will personally enjoy, but ones of like you ask every single critic to list their favorites and you do an aggregate to the lighthouse is going to be way the fuck up near the top. Um, and I've been going back and forth for the past maybe year or so of like reading a Calvino that I haven't read and then reading a wolf that I haven't read. And every now and again, I'll pepper in a reread because, you know, these books are just a fucking delight to me. Um, one of the benefits of something like going to grad school for literature is you do run into work that you never would have anticipated you would love and then you know winds up changing your life that's that's what we all look for in art in general anyway and i'm really glad that i did because the narrative structure of this reminds me so much of wolf in general but um i can use to the lighthouse i think is a bit um a bit better and maybe contrast that to something like mrs dalloway so in to the lighthouse the opening is uh the head of the family wants to go to the lighthouse. Um, and then his wife goes, we can't go to the lighthouse today though. And you know, and he goes, rah, 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 rah. and for the next legitimately 185 pages, he, they don't go to the lighthouse. It's you, you cover everything but that you cover, um, the sun, um, or one of the sons, uh, you know, cutting out things and making a collage and he eventually joins the military, uh, or his older brother joins the military, uh, and gets, uh, killed in World War One. Um, uh, you, you follow one of the daughters as she gets a bit older and dates somebody and she eventually just gets an illness and dies, you know, very shortly after her marriage. Um, the wife winds up passing away due to some unforeseen ailment just from age you get you know all this discussion about you know their neighbors who are you know um people who were pursuing phds and had to drop out or people who got phds in philosophy then got 
underpublished and all their frustrations. And it's just about these people. Literally nothing is happening. It's just sort of like you see someone and you go into these wheeling reminiscences about like, oh, who is this person to me? You know, what's going on? The presence of the lighthouse and wanting to go to the lighthouse is always there, but you don't know why he gives a shit about the lighthouse. You don't know what's at the lighthouse. You don't know, like, is this tied to his past? Never brought up because, you know, if you're not illiterate, it's clear that the lighthouse is more a symbolic function than like a literal lighthouse. It is technically a literal lighthouse, but that's not why you're reading it. Um, And then it's only in the final pages that they get to the lighthouse and it ends at like, and we disembarked from the boat because we were at the lighthouse. Boom, over. You get not a single goddamn word about what that means. Um, Contrast that to something like Mrs. Dalloway, where the, the whole premise is a woman has to get ready for a party that she's having that day, and she does. Um, And then she has the party at the end. Um, And it's more about the vast, universal-sized internality of the person doing that, like trying to give a literary voice to the domesticity of a woman preparing for a party that had been preserved in the world of literature and the arts for, you know, movers and shakers in the business world, for these, like, big upper-class people. We have to remember, especially when thinking about British novels, that um, public schools, which require a tuition there, are considered public schools because for the longest time, schools were where the aristocracy went to learn, and no one else got to go to school. And so the whole notion of we've opened schools that the public can attend, yes, it's still rich people going, um, and this is something that's harder for like a Western not Western, for like an American audience to crack open, of like, we're talking about places where old money doesn't mean people who got rich a hundred years ago. We're talking about people who got rich like a thousand years ago. And now they can even be poor, but they are somehow more socially powerful than even rich people are. Just like really insane shit. Europe is so fucked up. (laughs) Um, But the whole premise of that kind of modernist wing of writing was more about Let's strip plot away entirely. Plot now doesn't matter one fucking bit. What matters is who are these people? How do they feel? What does life feel like? What does the sensation... They were literally called like sensuous novels or sensate novels and lots of different terms like that. Because it's more about the feeling of livedness. Um, And it was of great benefit to me to be reading that alongside this totally coincidentally, not planned whatsoever because, and I mean, this is how M. John Harrison earned his stripes with so many literary people as much as, yeah, there's fish people. Yeah. He's, he's not unaware of the ties to Lovecraft and Innsmouth with that. He's not dumb. Um, he's Lord knows he's read enough to know what he's playing with when he does that. And, you know, yeah. when he messes around with stories of weird England and like pagan England, um, and especially the intimations of like a Celtic or even pre Celtic, um, paganry within Europe that maybe even Celticness itself had half quashed, but they discover these almost like Neolithic things. Like that's a whole rich history of literature, but, So much more importantly, it almost like this book almost isn't a fantasy novel because it's not really about any of that stuff. (laughs) It's like, how do those 
make us feel? How do those recontextualize our life? How does it feel to be confronted with, you know, the vastness of, of the ancient world? But, you know, because you're reading someone who's a bit smarter, he doesn't do the neo-fascist fellating of the pagan world that a lot of fantasy writers wind up satisfying themselves with. He doesn't look at it and go, oh, what great majesty that we lost in modernity. Like, there's clearly the strong tie being made between Victoria's tale and um, the, 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 ma the male character's tale of, like, these are the same conflicts. These are the same shape like humanity hasn't really transcended we've changed the shape of certain things but and he's not saying it in this mocking sneering way it doesn't feel like like he's not trying to go like oh we pitiful humans who who think so highly of ourselves it's it's something more akin to like a universal compassion of like i don't know it's it's like you it's so easy to see in him why two things why he won so many literary awards because like at its heart this is a literary novel more than a genre novel um and why he hasn't won so many of like hugo's and nebulas and stuff because he clearly he clearly loves science fiction mm -hmm. he clearly loves fantasy but he doesn't give a shit about writing fantasy for fantasy's sake. He doesn't give a shit about writing science fiction for science fiction's sake. He's like, I'm a living, breathing person. The science fiction and fantasy that I care about, I care about because it's touched me. It means something to me. It relates to my life, to my world, so, to how I've experienced it, how I've witnessed it. Yeah, and I think that's a really I, important... I don't care about, like, you know, who's the elf's dad? Who yeah. gives a fuck? Yeah, so I, I think that's a really important... Um, point that ties into maybe like tying this entire conversation together and in general um the sunken land begins to rise again and in a sense the book contains a lot of what harrison has been concerned with whenever he has written science fiction fantasy right whenever he wrote Vericonium and light and all of these other fantastic novels and centauri device for sure it's all been about what are these situations experiences, encounters, teach us about what it means to be human, right? And what it means to live and what it means to deal with the unknown, the unexplored and new experiences ourselves. And in a way, we could say that's the point of any science fiction and any fantasy and any literature, like you said, to write about this experience of being alive and how it feels. And I, I, I want to read a a last quote before we go to the second track of today and wrap this episode up, which was kind of like a aha moment for me as I was reading Sunken Land because it did, you know, as I was reading, it was like, this is it. This is like Harrison's whole raison d'etre, right? His whole thing that he's been striving for over his entire career. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the most recent re uh, book released by him, by the way, in 2023, was what he's calling an anti-memoir. Um, wish I Were Here, I think it's called, or Was Here, or something like that. Let me find that. Wish I Were Here, um, which is kind of like a confused and fragmented memoir of his life. So I think he is looking back, right? And has been looking back um, with Sunken Land as well. So, so here's that quote. He couldn't remember when that subject had come up. He thought it had been early on in the relationship in some pub. The way he saw the problem now, he told her, was this. Before his crisis, 
he had known too exactly who he was. There was a core to him so coherent, it never needed anything exterior to give it shape. He had been so certain of himself, he could reject anything or anyone, even someone he liked and wanted, for the next thing that came along. I could always rely on that. But then, I wasn't so sure. What happens to you, he asked, the first time you lose your balance that way and wonder whose life you're looking at? Maybe, he finished, that's what it was always about. Not just for me, but for everyone. We all were wondering that for a while, but no one knew why. I like this deep-seated suspicion that you have no fucking idea who you are, what you're doing. And the second that you ask those questions, the imbalance that comes with it, right? the confusion that comes with it, because you really have no criteria to hold on to your own internal cohesion other than your own internal cohesion. Right? There's nothing saying this is who you are. It's all an internal dialogue. And when that dialogue falters, suddenly you'll find yourself unsure. Right? Like a lot of the characters that we cover on Death Sentence, right? a lot of the protagonists of these novels simply get lost in not the weird itself, but what the weird communicates internally, that you are weird, that you never really knew who you are, that the answer to who you are is not... A, B, C. It's not a simple answer. It's not self-identical. On Monday, it's one thing. And on Thursday, it's another thing. And the desire shouldn't be to clean up the mess, so to speak, and come to a conclusion, but rather to figure out how to live with the uncertainty and with the question. Or maybe, and and I think that's where we'll wrap up, maybe Veronica's um, Victoria, sorry, maybe Victoria's solution is the solution, right? Walking into the weird, embracing the strangeness of what you see, um, diving into, literally, but also figuratively, into the liminal, into the twilight zone, into the unsettling reality that you will never understand the world. Never, ever will you describe everything exactly. Um, not only yourself, but also everything around you. Please I mean, read this, this book. Is, yeah, go on. This is at root why two th- why we do two things on this podcast um, and have for years and years. Number one, actually three things, uh, and they're all conjoined, thankfully. Uh, as corny as it sounds, the whole respect the molecule thing when it comes to psychedelics, um, Gareth and I have been pretty open about um eden to my knowledge has also partaken um but <laughs> it, not that any of us make it central to our identity because those people are fucking weird and then this in fact ties to it but like the whole point of kind of why psychedelic experiences can be meaningful be they coming from drugs or even alcohol um sleep deprivation just really intense music um like from a concert that like near shamanic experience there is precisely the way it dissolves the boundaries of who and what you think you are without necessarily rebuilding them. And this is something that one of my favorite quotes of all time, it gets wildly um, uh, misinterpreted a lot, is Isan describing what Satanism is to him and what Satan is. And he goes, Satanism means strength. It requires strength. 
you can read this in a lot of dipshit ways, like especially turbo fascist ones, but what he kind of means is, and this is drawn from Nietzsche, if you're staring into that kind of dissolving abyss, it requires a lot of internal fortitude to not wig the fuck out when that happens. Like, to have your sense of selfhood dissolved and not replaced with something, or at least not replaced with something easy. You don't go, well, I once was a Republican, but now I am a Democrat. Um, or even more tedious, because this touches on things from my real current life, I once was a liberal, but now I am a Marxist. But then you interrogate what Marxism means to them, and it means a static figure. It means this immovable object. They've made a they've made an icon that they now slavishly worship rather than it being a process, a, a mechanism of becoming. It is, well, I have to oppose sex work because that is the commodification of the, and instead of looking at like the real continuing emergent material conditions there. This is the same purpose of what magic is to us, where it's like we're, and broadly speaking, I pretty comfortable saying that the three of us are atheists by any plain Jane definition of that term. I don't think ghosts or spirits are real. I don't think that I'm going to go anywhere when I die, that kind of thing. But I still do and enjoy the the practice of, of magic, including magic with the K, <clears throat> um, mostly because of that same thing. It's about taking a thing that you knew that it was, this experiential thing, and letting it become so intense that it starts to peak and dissolve, and you start losing a sense of basically like controlled psychosis. Um, controlled being the very key thing there. Regular psychosis, having experienced it, very bad. Do not like. But these closed moments feel epiphanic and have felt epiphanic for people throughout the entire history of humanity for exactly this reason, that they challenge that which we think is and reopen us back up to even just witnessing, like with fresh eyes, like the eyes of a child, what is around us and what can we make with that? Like what potentialities are already here that we don't have to like work to get? Like they've always been here, but we've become numb to them or blind to them. And that hits it the third thing of like, why do we give a shit about Deleuze to the point of bringing him up a lot? And it's precisely because in the world, in our kind of political world, that we're in, you run into so many people that have been so enraptured by certain thinkers that tell them, you must think like me to be good. You must think like me to be smart. You must think like me to be useful. And this isn't to deny the value in tutelage, in, you know, spending your time hitting the books, you know, actually studying stuff. We're all big defenders there. But ultimately, my world is not Marx's world. Marx's world was in the mid-1800s and early 1800s. Very pivotal thinker, very grateful for all those works. I don't live in that world. My world isn't Castro's world, or my world isn't Virginia Woolf's world. My world, like, I can, I can tie this, obviously, outside of politics, but that ultimately, and this is sort of the thing that Deleuze's recapture of what dialectics really means in almost like an evolutionary biological sense is that like you are fresh. This even gets down to social justice and social forgiveness. The you of now is not the you who did the things that you did in the past. You deserve the freshness of life the way that everyone deserves the freshness of life. And having 
a thinker that can capture that sense of like, what is organicism but the perpetual freshness of the world? And this ultimately gets at that question of what makes something literary fiction versus genre fiction when fucking everything is a genre. Yeah. Like coming age tales are a genre. Historical novels are a genre. And it's literally, it's just caring about that thing, caring about that sense of, of becoming, of being, of witness. It doesn't matter where it's set. It can be set on a spaceship. It can be set in another fantasy world. It can be set, it can be an autobiography. Literally, that's the only thing that matters because generally speaking, beyond literature, that is the only thing that matters. 100%. I think that's a great point to stop on, especially for an author that has dabbled, not dabbled, explored outside fantasy and genre and science fiction and seriously i've i've harrison is like catling right like i've i'm close to having read almost everything he wrote like the major novel works and everything is great everything is good everything is thought-provoking uh, but sunken land is one of the best books i've ever read um by him or in general so i really 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 recommend that anybody here interested in anything that we discussed today um, and in general, just in a really well-written book, um, pick this one up. It's not easy. It will challenge you, but there's a lot um, there that's worth that challenge. Speaking of challenging things, um, the second track I want to play for you today is by a band that I feel is one of the most underrated bands um, working in specifically post and doom metal um, right now, and that is Flesh of the Stars. I have been a champion of these guys for a long time on Heavy Blog um, because I believe in them and I think they're making incredible music. These guys are like mega synth nerds um, that work with like multiple different types of synths and analog and digital tools to make really really crushing and subtle and smart metal. Um, Anihila from 2017 is a phenomenal, phenomenal album. And everything they've done since then has also been really good. This year, they released The Glass Garden, which is in many ways the heaviest and um, also fastest uh, album. has like a lot of thrash on it, stuff like that. But I, of course, want to keep the um, theme going. And just like I played the last track from um, Soft's Exogalactic, I'm going to play the last track from The Glass Garden. This is Unseen. It's 14 minutes long. It has a lot of ambience and um, mood to it and a lot of buildup. But if you give it the time, you'll discover like one of the most emotionally effective tracks of this year and I just fucking realized that I didn't put them in my top 25 and I want to die I spent today compiling <laughs> my top 25 albums and it was literally one of the hardest years I've ever had to do that because there's been so much good music this year um, so I have to go back and kick something out to fit these guys in um, listen to this track and then if you're interested go and explore the glass garden and general flesh of the stars is um, discography it is unique and moving and full of dedication and, and just some really good music 
Uh, so thank you as always for listening. This is Unseen by Flesh of the Stars. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye.